The last time we met, we had a discussion on what was going on during last year's election crisis, and we explored several interesting activities that were ongoing at the time. We saw unfold several court challenges to the legality uh, and constitutionality of the March 2nd, 2020 elections result. And we also saw several challenges brought forth by the then incumbent government um, led by the APNU AFC. They've made allegations of electoral fraud committed by the PPPC party and they've made allegations of the Guyana Elections Commission results being heavily, for, for some reason, uh, corrupted, manipulated by what they considered at the time Russian agents. For me personally, uh, I find super alarming a bandwagon of misinformation peddled online, especially in social media, pertaining to the process of a Guyanese election. That includes how GCOM processes a ballot. It also included the uh, transparency of the electoral results on election day. And we saw many political candidates, uh, those who belong to either the PPPC or the uh, APNUAFC, uh, in a constant back and forth argument on social media and on national television concerning the legitimacy of the results. I think one of the major challenges posed to the general Guyanese public is who do you listen to? Who do you trust? And we saw that there was a serious tension between the media in trying to get out the facts about what one should expect from the electoral body, GCOM, the process, how it works, at least how it should work, ideally, and how you can determine the legitimacy or validity of, of a ballot. But this constant back and forth tension that we saw between the two major political parties wrestling to hold true to what they claimed at the time to be on the right side of the election. But it calls into question a matter of trust. Who can a Guyanese public trust, the electorate trust, when it comes to election results? I mean, you can say that, of course, GCOM has to be the institution to uh, produce an accurate result, but we saw the fiasco at the time, we saw the numerous questionable actions that the GCOM officials partook in. And we also saw several legal challenges brought about the behavior and the um, the procedures performed by electoral agents within GCOM. I would like to start there. Where does that leave the Guyanese electorate when it comes to uh, trust in their election results and the implications for the next election? So everything we talk about tends to go back to some of the earlier fights between AP and UAFC and the uh, People's Progressive Party, which at the time was the opposition. and. To me, that was the significance of the fight over who would become the chair of the Elections Commission, right? Why were they fighting over who would become the chair of the commission? Because at the end, the commission is the constitutional body that determines the election results. And with the way the commission is set up, where like there's an equal number of um, commissioners from the leading opposition party and then from the governing party, and then the two leaders of the 
opposition party and the governing party is supposed to come to a compromise on who the chair is. When we saw that compromise process thrown out the window and a unilateral de declaration of the GCOM chairman as Patterson, I think it was like forecasting that the election results would be contentious. And why would it be contentious? Because what's at stake is not just the usual control of the government or state power, but control of the government and state power under the auspices that there's this newfound oil wealth, right? And we know corruption is a thing that's deeply embedded into Guyanese politics. So whoever then is in charge of the oil wealth will be able to um, benefit. But to go back to the question of who do you trust, I think people were not necessarily looking to the elections commission. They were looking to their own people. I, I like see it as analogous to like when you're trying to go to the bus park to take a minibus and you're walking towards the buses and the touts come to you and they make very open racial appeal to you. They said, bye, come with your people, right? So if you're Afro-Guyanese, they want you to go into a bus with black people, right? So like the black tout will come and get you. But I think, at least in my experience, it was often a black tout saying, bye, come with your people and they put you in a bus with an Indian bus driver. And similarly, there's something like that that happens with this election process where they want you to trust your people. But at the end of the day, you're not benefiting to the same extent that your people who own the businesses and your people who uh, live in government do. If you're an Afro-Guyanese person and you're a squatter in Sapphire, for example, it's hard to tell what benefits would come to you if the APNU AFC were to win. And I'd say the same thing for people living in impoverished areas who are Indo-Guyanese should they vote for the People's Progressive Party. So as it relates to what was, was said before, there's a lot of things that you need to factor in as it relates to who will you trust. Basically, disposition that was brought to us by GCOM because there's no other person that I would say is directly responsible for the outcome of things um, other than GCOM. This imposition brings to question a lot of things that happened before now as it relates to GCOM. Because how could you get an election so horribly wrong when there are so many safeguards to actually protect it? And it basically showed that a lot of persons within GCOM were compromised. And then you need to look back at GCOM itself because there is no way that a political body should be allowed to hijack an, uh, a something that's supposed to be a neutral person so easily gcom is supposed to be some some something that is sacrosanct as it relates to our country but that was basically infiltrated and to me it wasn't hard to infiltrate it you just needed to control the right persons and then you can get whatever you want done and i think as it relates to gcom we need to seriously look at how we make selections of personnel within gcom and we also need to do away with this three persons from the opposition three persons from the, the the government system that we use because if you get control of the chairperson you basically get to dictate what happens in gcom and that was clearly done by apnu and david granger in instated James Patterson as the head of GCOM. So moving forward, I think that what we should probably do is do away with this entire system of, of three from one side and three from the other side, because 
what happens to other persons that may run contest in this election? Don't they deserve also a say at this table forum for GCOM? And then you would say that maybe I don't think that it, it should have any political person making these decisions because political persons will drive it based on their their political conscience. So I think that moving forward, we should probably get members of civil society that may, may have been selected by basically other means than the government to work within civil society and they could basically be the ones dictating what GCOM does in a sense. I mean, you still can get the, the um, head of GCOM there, but the persons that surround the head can be changed very easily. In addition to this, when you look at our democracy, you really understand that there is little to no room in our democracy for us to basically move ahead because at the end of the day, when you look at the persons who set the policy, the government will always set policies so they can remain in power. Adding to what um, Robert said, APNU, I think supporters and so on should be embarrassed at APNU because knowing that all of this was at stake, they should have used that in itself to motivate them to do better. And I do believe that they were in a very good position to do better, but they, as far as I'm concerned, got greedy. And that is what led to their downfall. And then for them to lie to their supporters, show that they are an embarrassment to their supporters, because at minimum, you should have told your supporters the truth. And I believe that the truth is what will lead you to be rebuild yourself back and put yourself into contention. But as long as you withhold the truth from everybody, including yourself, there will be no way to actually move on from what happened. So it seems as though GCOM centrally has significant problems and it seems to be concerning its entire design. So if there's a systemic problem with GCOM and the way it's um, chairperson is elected. Of course, the president is the individual who decides who gets to be the GCOM chairperson after discussions with the opposition leader. But ultimately, he gets to decide. Uh, so there's no doubt that there's some room for political play. The institution GCOM has some significant barriers that exist, which makes it opposite than what it portrays itself to be, which is impartial. But yet we hear from political leaders that GCOM must act impartially and that GCOM is in fact an impartial institution. But when the problems arise within GCOM, they tend to dismiss this reality and shift back into presenting GCOM as an impartial institution. I was reading a report written by the Carter Center. And in that report, in their observations and recommendations, after having observed numerous elections, their report reiterates what they've noted in previous reports, which is that GCOM as a very important democratic institution in Guyana, it has to undergo fundamental change. One such change that they propose is that the election of the representatives that make up GCOM could be something that mirrors to the effect of what you were describing, Michael, where you have NGOs, civil society organizations who participate in that election process in order to produce an impartial elected individual. Of course, 
party representatives can partake in that process, but it's not going to be restricted exclusively to their selection criteria. It's going to be not just bipartisan, but more inclusive for society to partake in that election process. What do you both think about such a proposal? Can reconfiguring how the elected bodies that constitute GCOM, can that lead to a better and more impartial institution? I think one thing we've all talked about in the past is the need for constitutional reform in Guyana. And GCOM, as we know, it comes out of this 1980 constitution, right? The socialist constitution that establishes Guyana as this um, cooperative socialist republic. So any changes to GCOM would itself require constitutional reform. And the question is, do we even have the political buy-in for that? But more importantly, is the question of the form of the election body really what's at stake as opposed to, like I would say, the political content? Who's to say civil society organizations can't be swayed as easily as the commissioners Right. Because, like, you know, we haven't mentioned names. So part of who we're talking about here, I understand, is um, Mr. Lowenfield. Right. Who came out um, as a commissioner against the GCOM president to say he felt that the process was flawed and he felt the process was flawed and made the case to the extent that here in New York, in Brooklyn, when they had justice for the Henry boys marches, some people held signs that said justice for the Henry boys and Lowenfield. So I would ask, like, you know, are we then saying there needs to be a process of constitutional reform in the near future? And I would also ask Michael to clarify, because, you know, there would be people who would listen to this who are well-meaning supporters of the coalition government and maybe not agree that the government lied to them. So, Robert, you're saying that politics will have its role to play for such an agency. Yeah, I mean, so, like, look at the example, like, when Trump lost the election here, right? He called the secretary of state in Georgia and asked him to overturn the election. And no one said, oh, well, what needs to happen is that, you know, the secretary of state needs to not have a role over these types of things. So like in the same way that Trump just picked up the phone and called the secretary of state and said, find me some votes. Right. Any political party in Guyana could call whoever is on the election commission, whether they are a party person or not and say, find me some vote. I agree with what Robert said, as it relates to how we actually configure GCOM. But the situation is that at currently, there isn't, I don't know of any other like better way to configure them. That is why I had mentioned initially that members of, of the body should have no institutional, like government making selections of these persons at any bearing. So like, for instance, you get a judicial service commission who selects judges. There is a, actually an independent body. There's also the private sector commission who would have a stake and would like a say in this thing. That's private body that makes a selection. And there are many other organizations there also, like for instance, the army, the police force and so on. But the reality too is that they may have political undertones. And that is where the problem goes. I think that it is in, it is indeed true. We would need constitutional reform um, to actually remedy a lot of the problems that we have in society. And until that is actually done, there wouldn't be any like the best way, like the, the perfect way of ad addressing GCOM itself. 
I think our founders and so on under the constitution, they basically ensured that the constitution would, was done in such a way that the, the powers remain in the executive. And fundamentally, until we, we, we let the executive relinquish those powers, this is going to be the road that we actually go down every single time because the executive gets to do basically whatever they want. And that is that was what we saw from the selection of James Patterson by um, the president, which was a very ad hoc and very autocratic move to say, to say the least because it went against what was actually agreed upon but there was power in in his hands to actually do that and the, the problem also exists is that there isn't any body oversight body that would actually go and say hey you know what you're doing this wrong or any oversight body that would tell you that you know what this here is wrong the, the only oversight body would be the courts and the courts as we saw before they are also somewhat flawed luckily we had to wait until uh, something outside of our country decided what to do. And from the point of nation building, that that in itself, I don't believe that should be. As it relates to what Robert said, um, as it relates to the lies, these specifically would be that APN, you actually want the election. I mean, if you want an election, the very easy way to verify that you actually won, won the election was to reveal your SOPs. The statement of polls that you hold. The reluctance by the APNU to release their SOPs is, is basically admission of guilt. Because if your SOPs, which were signed on to by your personnel that was was seated in these positions, were true, then we would have not had this problem because you could simply release your SOPs. Those SOPs would match what GCOM have. And the story finished right there. PvP lied. But that was not the case. And there were people who actually believed like wholeheartedly that what the AP and you were saying to them was true. And it was very distasteful, I, I would say, because those people were led astray. And like it's simple things like when 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 these people now come on Facebook and other forms of social media to defend what the AP and you did, they go on those forums believing in what these these people would say. And then for you to have this belief and then all the events turn around like this, it would leave a bad taste in these people's mouth. And that that is the real sad thing to me because AP and you tried various methods of trying to like chastise what happened i remember force they said that the elections were infiltrated by russians and that in itself made no sense then when that didn't work they said that the elections were flawed and they went on to say that um that they were rigging like significant rigging in the election when when that didn't work they they try to lash on to the concept that you know what if if PVP actually go back into power it it would be the U.S. actually outmaneuvered the APNU into this and this situation I saw something unfold that that basically if the U.S. did not come and intervene in 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 a particular way we would have been down a very bad road and it would mean a very scary road because the thing is it. APNU managed to allow the U.S. along with many other countries that the U.S. would have not necessarily had relations with 
to basically bond together to get them out because of what they did and it set it set a really bad precedence on the APNU now because basically at this point in time the PP could basically get rid get get away with anything that they feel like doing because of how weak the APNU are right now so we talked about the need for constitutional reform we stress that if we can't have constitutional reform at least in motion we won't be able to move in a direction that could take us to some degree of a better electoral institution. In order to get to constitutional reform, you need the political will to get there. Now, over the last three decades, there have been numerous promises by both major political parties that they will ensure that constitutional reform is on the priority agenda. Of course, the last re- election, we um, heard from the now president, Irfan Ali, who a campaign promised that constitutional reform and reforming the Ghana Elections Commission would be on his top priority agenda. What I'm concerned by is if we have a history, like a historical record with these two major parties making these bold promises, but yet not one of them have fulfilled those promises and the political will remains lacking, then it seems to me that we're in a sort of political paradox where we we need something which is constitutional reform. We don't quite have the political will, but the people who we depend on to make it happen are the ones who are in political power. Where does that take us? Well, I mean, I, I think what that indicates before we talk about where it takes us is that the way the current elect- elections commission is set up is actually advantageous to the two leading parties. And they know that they can battle it out between themselves for the selection of the chair of the electoral commission. And I think they even acknowledge in some ways that you know, putting the chair in and having a chair that's favorable to you is one of the ways in which you can help to guarantee that your party remains in power. In 2017, when the saga was going on, for example, the prime minister at the time with the APNU, uh, Moses Nagamutu, uh, was quoted in the Chronicle saying, quote, this whole thing is not about the Elections Commission. This is not about the people of Guyana. This is about the empowerment, the placement of an individual in an authority of power. And he went on to add that the leader of the opposition, former President Jagdeo, was just eager to return to office. But I think the same thing can be said of the APNU AFC, right? That like their interest in putting in an elections commissioner who was favorable to them is about this question of remaining in power. So I think we then have to ask for the average Guyanese person, like say the average voter, where do your interests lie in constitutional reform? How do you make constitutional reform a priority? How do you make it a question of political will that both the governing party and the opposition feel that they have to bring about a constituent assembly of of sorts? The way that happens is if people actually start agitating for this thing in a really big way that they start having rallies for it, that every time a politician comes to visit their town or their region, they say, hey, when is the constitution going to change? But the reality is every time an election happens, this conference is uh, finalized, 
the con the conversation over cons over constitutional reform tends to die away up until it's time for elections again or it's time to replace the head of the elector elections commission one of the key aspect of the conversation that perhaps which is why this is such a dodgy topic for these two political parties is that constitutional reform will also entail limiting power do you think that there's a fear where this aspect of power limiting power might come into play which is why it's being stalled yeah and that there in lies the biggest problem because as i mentioned before our constitution is built in such a way that the executive has uh, like a lot of power and it comes now who would be the person to actually go ahead and relinquish that much power the reality though that people must understand is that relinquishing that power is for the greater good of guyana in itself but the politicians based on them not actually reforming the constitution are sure that they do not care about Guyana. I mean, the PP, after they had won the election, had 23 years to basically change the constitution into a way that you won't have the problems that they ran into in 2020. But they did not. To this date, they're in power for about six months or more. There still is no uh, modus operandi to change the constitution. And I mean, like, with what happened there should have been urgency placed on on that in itself but it comes back to the reality that really the government and the main opposition like the position that they were in for 50 years of Guyanese independence and they're not doing anything to change that so i think that they have to look inside themselves and realize that maybe in the next next election they can be in opposition and if they're in opposition they go back to square one with every single thing so it's the it is very important now to change it so it wouldn't happen like it happened before in addition to this the the power that lies within the government in itself compels them not to do during constitutional reform because from a political standpoint they would actually get to push through their agendas very very easily with the amount of power that they have so it's it's a very it's, it's a very tedious process and i really hope that someone of our presidents have the intestinal fortitude to actually push something like that because it's for the greater good of everybody is not not you can't stay in government forever well you should not be allowed to stay in government forever so i mean i think this just comes down to you know like what mechanism can ordinary people use to impose their will and their collective political will on the leading parties in the country and you know what mechanisms are available like one thing i always point out to people in the united states who say you know like voting doesn't work voting doesn't count don't even think about voting is that like it's a particularly american point of view because everywhere else in the world um voter participation rates are quite high right and guyana is one of these places where at least like 70% of the people eligible to vote turn out to the polls whereas in the US they struggle to get to 50% usually even though the last uh presidential election was a little different and recorded historically high turnouts because of the threat 
Trump himself posed and people who were in support of Trump. But there needs to be then some kind of mechanism for people to impose their will beyond the elections and the local government elections whenever they happen to um, be called. And in other countries, maybe you could say, well, uh, maybe the trade unions, right? Maybe the trade unions need to get together and form a political party. That's what happened in Canada and in Britain, that the trade unions got together and formed with these general labor parties. But the trade unions in Guyana themselves are tied to this or that political party. Like, like if you think about the Sugar Workers Union, for example, uh, the general secretary or the president of the uh, Sugar Workers Union is Komal Chan, who is a member of parliament for the People's Progressive Party. So there's a level of partisanship in Guyanese politics that kind of prevents this like mass mobilization of the people based on common interests and what substituted is a mobilization based on racial interests. And I think we have to ask to what extent those racial interests are shared in an objective sense by people on the bottom of society and people on the top. If you are a poor Indian person or a poor black person, in what ways do you really have a shared interest with rich or well-off um, black or Indian politicians? and uh, business people. And like we have to start interrogating these questions for our generation, the same way Walter Rodney started interrogating it for his generation. And hopefully we come out with a better outcome than Rodney and we live to tell the story as to how that uh, inquiry went. And, and Robert, you mentioned that, you know, one way where people can come together is by forming some sort of union, political unionship, and they can be grouped or maybe form some sort of partisanship where they uh, contend their ideas and contend their uh, their political virtues and beliefs and hopefully gain political support uh, in order to bring about the sort of changes that, that affect them directly. I am a bit skeptical whether new political parties can do it on their own. We see, for instance, like the Citizenship Initiative and a new and a united Guyana. They've made their manifesto with such promises that they would ensure that constitutional reform happens. But what assurance should the average electorate, what assurance should they put in these new political parties? How challenging would it be to execute these bold promises? I mean, so part of it has to do with like what makes the new political party different beyond the promises that they make, right? Um, I, the three of us could form a party tomorrow and make promises. And I think any average Guyanese person would have the right to ask what makes you different. So if you look at the Citizenship Initiative or ANUG, terrible acronym, um, what makes them different? You look at their manifesto, the manifesto says they will be different. Okay, but how do we know it? And part of it has to do with like the actual structure of the political organization you're putting forth and how it was created. If we look back to the creation of the People's Progressive Party, Jetty Jagan was able to create that party because he and the people around him did a lot of work in the countryside organizing sugar workers, right? So that when he formed this political party, people were able to look at him and say, yes, that's the man who went abroad, studied, but came back 
and came in the mud with us and helped to advocate for our rights. And can we say there's a political party in Guyana at this time that plays a similar role in standing up for the people or mobilizing for them? Like the closest thing I can think of when I lived in Guyana is when um, Dian Sharma had his Justice for All party and it was linked to his TV station where he would go out and do like this muckraking journalism and show all the conditions people were living in and call on the quote unquote relevant authorities to uh, fix what needed to happen. But we know that he, that man was not a serious politician with a radically different program. So any new political party you have to ask him, what input has the ordinary Guyanese person had in the creation of your party? How many open public meetings have you held where people came and helped to uh, create this structure of, of your party? So I, I'll, I'll let Michael go, but I think I can't think of an organization like that in Guyana, and I haven't been there a long time. Firstly, I must say that we are down a very sad road, and most of this has to do with what EFC was and then what EFC have become. Initially, AFC would have been that voice that was supposed to be the movement that led us through this situation. However, they decided to take a different path. Instead of being a part that they stand by themselves, they went and joined another party and basically committed political suicide because they were coerced and bullied into making decisions that they themselves claimed they were not fully on board with. As it relates to the new parties that were formed, persons in Guyana would have a lot of distrust because of what happened with EFC. And this distrust that we see is very easy to be manifested in, in every single thing. Because, for instance, the new parties have not done anything to, to basically remove that distrust. Because as soon as the PPP went into power, Many of these parties hold now executive roles. The PPP themselves could say that, you know what, we are actually doing this so these people will have a voice. But you can also look at the situation as, as being a way that the PPP showing them that, hey, you know what, you could come with, with us and we'll ensure that everything is well with you. Some PPP representatives considered the inclusion of other political representatives, their version of sharing governance. What do you think? I see it in a different light because I see it as a way of basically giving these people hush money. Because when you actually look at the size of their salaries and benefits that they're actually collecting, it's it's things to actually be very interested in. Because I mean, like, why did this basically you're selling yourself out? And I believe that these people could have done similar things, ensure that their voices are heard in, in similar forums without necessarily being being hired by the government. Lennox Schumann is an advisor to the president. Granted, that is a very good position. He could give advice based on anything. But the success of the government becomes entied, um, tied up with Lennox Schumann because for instance, and that is why you don't necessarily go and get directly hired onto their fold. Lennox Schumann, you would think that he, he has the Amerindian people at heart. I, I, well, I wouldn't think. I, I, I believe that he has the Amerindian people at heart. When things go south, let's say 
decision making and so on and the Amerindian people are are very disgusted by some some development that they did not have the government could say that basically Lennox Schumann was advising us and that is why this thing fall and he could become the person who takes the blame for these things happening in addition to this I am there are some members from the new movement I believe on the Gaiwo board and a similar thing could happen so the, the the reality of your voice being hard doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be coincided to a a politic a position within the government network basically you can you can say what you need to say from the outside and it it also brings it brings additional like layer of, of problems because um when you actually look at these new parties from the announcement of the election to now what have they done they have not done anything i mean i always believe that the preparation for the next election begins when the present election is over they can go out within their political construct and say you know what we're going to host meetings because we want to know what the people interjections for the next budget will be you host rallies and go various places and you ask people what do you want because this is what happens when they're looking for votes but when when they're not looking for votes they're relaxed and that i don't believe is all political revolution should be you should always be on the ground trying your best to ensure that you hear the voices of the people um no pun intended as it relates to sharma but that is what you need to do michael mentioned like you know he's saying that none of these new parties seem ready for a political revolution right and i think that's like you know to me it's a common sense thing that what Guyana does need is a political revolution like a really upturning of the current system that we have in place but who has the daring to even try to do it and part of it has to do with not just the you know current government and the opposition and the way they trade roles but we're under like another regime right we're also quote unquote in America's backyard and there's only so much rocking the boat you can do before marines land on your doorstep there's only so much rocking the boat you can do before the government in Venezuela takes advantage of any strife amongst the political class in your um country to distract their own people from the misery that's going on there we've seen some of this with the flyovers they've been doing and the different patrols on the border but if we are going to keep talking about the, the needs for constitutional reform Oscar about the needs for constitutional reform then one of the things uh we would need right for constitutional reform to go ahead is a constitutional assembly and any small political party could build a constitutional assembly in embryo you could go to starbrook market go to border market go to any popular square anywhere and set up an open mic and said you a regular person come tell me what you want to hear changed about guyana what needs to be changed and you could take those stories compile them together into a narrative to say this is what the guyanese people want and you go about the country agitating for it there's nothing especially hard about doing that but the question is like who has the daring to do it right because you're going to look like a crazy person you you might as well be an evangelical going out and saying come testify about the goodness of the lord um because really what you're going to ask people to do come testify to the rottenness of the current political system 
And if we remember the examples of Walter Rodney and Courtney Crum Ewing, um, you don't do these things without risk. So who is really ready, willing, and able to take the risk? I, I agree with, with what, what Robert said. There is indeed a need for a revolution. I mean, if 50-something years, something in work, and you know that something is, is definitely wrong. And we've been this way for too long. I think that a lot of times the, po the politicians, they take, they take good with the fact that Guyanese are very docile people as it relates to agitating for things to happen. And because of this, because like, for instance, if this was happening in many other countries, there would have been revolution by now. There would have been, someone would have just got up and, for instance, in Libya, burned themselves alive just to force something to happen. But our people tend to be very adaptable people. And that, that is, I believe, is the Achilles of, of us. Because we tend to go ahead and say, you know what, if the government doing X, you got to find it within yourself to ensure that X work. And this is generally how everyone goes about doing it. In addition to this, the fear of victimization is, is very, very um, vivid amongst the people in society. Because our politicians are very vindictive. And that is what has been going on for a very long time. And the, the need for that to change is important. But it is the same system whereby the government basically controls everything that creates this fear. Because as an executive, the government basically, from what we've been seeing in the past from the APNU administration and the PP administration before, is that they can basically go and tell, tell the police force, you know what, lock X up. Tell GRE, you know what, you need to investigate X or Y and basically force them to do those things because they have a say in these people actually becoming um becoming in coming into power basically at, at these these um positions. So how can we now agitate for, for that to happen? It it has to come within the people. The people themselves have been struggling for a very long time. The poor class in Ghana is like not, nothing at all. The, the, their voices and so on are not heard. And this this is seen within a lot of things because, for instance, there are a lot of these businessmen within the country who I would, would say are amongst the elite, the high class. They go about life not paying taxes, evading from various things, doing things like, for instance, the police never, can't really tell them anything because of the power that they hold and the connections that they have. Meanwhile, the lower class of people, they have to pay their taxes. They can't get a vehicle in the country duty-free. They can't go ahead and say that, you know, we could owe NIS XYZ amount of money. They have to, to foot that bill. And they are the persons that you would expect that after seeing all of these things happen, would actually get up and say, you know, we can't take it anymore. But they're not. They're clearly adaptive to everything that happens and they, they try to find a way and it is really sickening because those are the major stakeholders in the country i think most of the population are actually within the poor the middle class the low middle class and they need to be the ones who come out and, and do something and say something i mean these little parties like that we have you would expect them to be the ones trying to as robert alluded to agitate for that to happen but they, they aren't really doing anything much. And I, the, the direction that the country is going is basically still the same direction. 
For instance, when you look at the six months of the PP actually coming to power, is two budgets got passed. But with these two budgets passed, there haven't been any policy change. The oil and gas sector, there have been absolutely no change to that. The only thing that, that has really been done is that they have the local content come out and it's under review. But other than that, what policies have they put forward to change the way our elections are done? What policies have they put together to change the way how, how they, this, the, the suffering that they said that was there during the AP and you tried to address that? Most of the changes are coming benefiting the, the, the elites, basically. There isn't really much to say that the poor person will see a change in X or Y. The only thing is that they reduce some construction costs, but the poor person, it, it, the Ford, I, I think they remove the taxes, which is about 14%. And like, for instance, a sack of cement costs about 65,000 Ghana dollars, and it barely moved to 60,000 Ghana dollars. So when you move out to 14, the business class is still benefiting because the business class realized that we don't necessarily need to drop our prices to 14% less. And they, they concord that and they basically gain more money from that. So I don't, they, there really needs to be some degree of change as it relates to that. And until the poorer class agitates for that, I don't really see much of that coming. You know, with this incoming oil wealth, there should be a battle and a fight in Guyana over the um, direction of this money and what's done with it. And one clear, like, burning need that the country has is for a major public works program to upgrade the country's utilities and infrastructure, right? Like, you think about blackout, you might as well think about Guyana. Why should an oil producing nation not have an electricity grid that can actually function, right? That can actually be built to be maintainable and not have people have generators? Why aren't there 
uh, passable roads that run throughout the country, right? Why are there um, places that are not islands in Guyana that you cannot drive to? And what else to do with the money than to spend it on these things? And if you spend the money on these things, then you have to, of necessity, employ Guyanese people to build out these projects. This is what happened in the United States with the New Deal, right? That the country was in a severe economic depression. And one of the things they tried to do was a major public works program, which built things like the interstate highway that we know of. And the people got put to work to do it. So what else do they plan to do with this money but a major public works program? And that's another thing people should be agitating for, for a constitution, well, a constituent assembly and for a major public work program. And all the people who uh, went into office making certain claims, uh, small parties and big, should be held to those promises. There was this um, uh, interviewing voters show in Trinidad in their last election. And they went and they asked this fisherman which party he preferred. And he said he didn't prefer either the party because regardless of who won, he had to go catch fish, boil fish, and sell fish. So they asked him, well, when the parties come into power, what do you would you like to see them do, regardless of whichever one comes in? And the answer he gave is like, my, I think the mantra all working class people should uh, go about life with. He said, well, all the promises they made in those manifestos they put out during the election period, if they break any of the promises, jail them. Well, to, to be fair to the current administration, um, they have put in place um, basically a design basically going into the infrastructural upgrades. Um, as relates to GPL, they're trying to push the gas to shore project. As relates to infrastructure, they're trying to push the Linden to Letham Road and along with the um, the Quarantine River Bridge. Um, I think over time, they're pushing for the Deepwater Harbor too. So there are those things in place. But um, it's just that the policies, I, I really think, needs to change because, for instance, one could look at these things, these projects, and just say that these guys are just going to go ahead and end up making a lot of these deals very corrupt because that has been what, what our government has basically been doing. For a good example of that is the asphalt plant. Um, whereby the minister had a lot of kickbacks and so on, so people could look look at it from that way, and there isn't any anybody, and that that's not a problem that I see because when you're going to see cases of corruption come out, and nobody is going to jail for it, it it begs you begs to ask what is really going on with the system that we have, because it basically shows the politicians could do us anything and just get away with it, and there is no repercussions for it. 